and welcome to A Nightmare on Fear Street, a monstrous podcast about all things horror. If you like what you hear today, then you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can also rate and review us on Apple iTunes. Today, we're talking about um, a fan favorite. We, we put the word out to you all, and so we're listening to our listeners. It's very redundant, but I'm here for it. Um, <laughs> and we are talking about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. The original Shining indeed. Um, while we're talking about The Shining, we pulled the top 16 movies y'all voted on. Um, so let's give you your list, some of which were scheduled, some of which were not. So it's fun. So clearly The Shining won by one vote <laughs> um, for your top choice. Get Out was your second choice, but you've already heard that one, so we couldn't redo that, because that's really redundant. Do you really want to talk about that again? I mean, or, we could. Do you want to hear me gush about Jordan Peele again? <laughs> 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 and how perfect that movie is? Because it is. Right? No. Like, in this essay, we will. <laughs> One day we might revisit it. Yes. Um, in third place, but tied with Get Out, was Halloween, the original, which clearly we have scheduled. I mean, have you met us? Also in this tie with Get Out and Halloween was Hereditary. Give Toni Collette all of the awards. That shit was creepy. For literally everything she ever touches. Literally. Um, except for The Sixth Sense, which is a different argument. <laughs> um... So to continue this tie, we had Scream. And can we just say Hereditary and Scream were both on our hit list. We just, it is not an immediate thing, but thank you all for letting us know you're here for it when we get to that. And if you listen to the first episode, you should know <laughs> that yes. Scream is on our list. <laughs> right? We are pacing ourselves with the West Cravens. <laughs> That's what we're doing. We could have easily crammed them all in. Um, and the last one in this five-way tie, <laughs> was The Conjuring. So your, your seconds were Get Out, Halloween, Hereditary, Scream, and The Conjuring, for those of you trying to keep track of that five-way tie. <laughs> <laughs> and for third place, the tie was Silence of the Lambs and The Witch. Solid. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. Then we have a three-way tie for next place, 28 Days Later, Cabin in the Woods, and Haunted on Hill House, the TV show, Oh yeah, and Midsummer was also in that tie. And then like everything else is tied for last place in that would be an American Werewolf in London. Good. Dark, Darkness Falls, which if you can make a tooth fairy scary, let's do that. Poltergeist. Um, the Exorcist and Train to Busan. And everything else only had one vote because nobody voted enough for anything else to make it into this list of 18. So next time we do it, you better speak up. Right? Voice your concerns or your horror movie might not get talked about on a podcast. Me in a bar someday in the future, possibly. But is it the same? Is it? Is it? Let's get back to this world of The Shining. What are our general thoughts? You start us off, Trent, because I got rants. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll get into specific things when we go through it. I get the technique of why, the, or like the reason why so many people love this movie based solely on technical filmmaking and like cinematography and stuff like that. Um, as for theme and writing and performance, I have some issues. Um, I think that, and we'll get into this when we start talking about him, 
but I think it starts from the top. And the director of this film was abusive to his actors on multiple occasions, on multiple films. And so, and, and me having, you know, directed before, not any film, but in theater, I think that you're responsible for the, for the environment that you, the, the show or film has. And I think so a lot of that rides on him. And I think that's where a lot of these actors probably couldn't give their best. It's interesting too, because while they both really hate the, the uh, acclaim this movie has gotten, because it's for the most part, Anytime anyone talks about this movie, it's not talked about their performances. It's talked about Stanley Kubrick. And um, they both say, rightfully so, that this was one of the most difficult roles they ever played. And I think that's both, you know, thematically due to content and then also due to his environment. Agreed. In this essay I have entitled Stanley Kubrick was an asshole. I, I will walk us through the bullets for the sake of time. Um, first off, Shelley got the first Raspberry Award for that performance. However, we know now she was being tortured on set and abused. And the director rewrote that role from what we know of that woman she plays in the book. Wendy was a different way in the original and, Shining. And actually Jack Nicholson did not want, well, he did not want Shelley Duvall to play the role, but he, he thought she was fine but he didn't think that she fit the role correctly as written in the book. He wanted... Um, Jessica Langis and Stephen King won it. Yes, and that's who Jack Nicholson wanted too. And so I think that would have been a really interesting choice. Again, not that I thought Shelley is a bad actress or like not right for the role or didn't do well. Yeah, it all falls on Stanley in my opinion. It does, because he wrote it, he produced it, he directed it, and he started that whole, don't talk to Shelley, let's mistreat Shelley, let me yell at Shelley. Um, clumps of her hair were falling out and watching her talk about it she uses so much victim language like if you just pull up the clips on YouTube Stanley Kubrick's own daughter did like a documentary on The Shining because she was around it's also on I have a DVD release of the film and it's on that as well ooh yeah um, but like if your daughter catches you being an asshole in so many instances and you can clearly see Jack Nicholson being Jack Nicholson but over it <laughs> and like Shelly's just like pulling hair out of her head and she doesn't understand why it's coming out. There was one moment uh, on that documentary that um, it's when it, she first starts having the hair fall out um, and she's talking about it and like people are trying to comfort her and Stanley Kubrick, you literally hear him say, don't sympathize with Shelly, leave her alone. And, she, and he tells her, she's like, why? Why are you doing this? And he's like, it, it won't help you. And she says, yes, it will. I mean, like, listen to people. Her hair is falling out. This is, I mean, you can see it happening. It's not <laughs> something she's making up. Part of his technique was to have the cast and crew not talk to her and not interact with her. And for this to be a shoot that he let go on for 13 months of people ignoring her is another reason that goes back to my thesis of Stanley Kubrick was an asshole. That and having them film things 60 to 127 times till actors are like crying and upset because they keep having to refilm things, that is a form of torture and abuse. There's also a scene where it's in the movie, it's when she's going out, Jack, or um, yeah, Jack tells her. Also, it's weird that Jack Nicholson is playing Jack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes get confused. Anyways, 
um, Jack tells her to go look at the snow cat and she's going out the front door and they're shooting that and they're talking through a um, uh, um, walkie talkie mm-hmm. and she's inside and they're all outside dealing with the snow, the snow machine and all this stuff. They say a whole bunch of like confusing and like weird act of like commands and then they say Shelly go. And she's confused, standing behind this door, not having anyone around her. And so she kind of starts to go out. And then Stanley, you hear him scream, cut. And he goes up to her and just starts screaming at her that she is wasting everyone's time, that she needs to get it together. And she's like, "I, you said hold. And then you said this. And then you, and then you said go, Shelly. And I was just really confused. And he was like, well, I don't, like, all the, he was just so rude to her. Mm. And that will lead into my conclusion for Stanley Kubrick was an asshole um, with my statement of stop claiming abusers are geniuses. It, they are not. Their abuse does not make better material. It does not make better work. This movie, I, I don't love this movie. I, I get that how at the time maybe it was creative and inventive, but I feel like it was two and a half hours of very slow, self-masturbatory, I'm a genius and the world lets me be a genius. But his whole his whole gimmick was abusing actors to the point where actors didn't want to work with him again. The Which, person he wanted for O'Halloran was like, no more. We just finished a movie. We finished a James Bond. Never again. Which it's interesting, too, if you really get into the themes of the film itself, abuse is a big theme. And we'll talk about it more later on. But like, it was almost art imitating life, life imitating art this whole cycle and like it just that's part of the reason why I don't love this film is because I literally feel like I'm watching real life abuse does that make sense like I feel like I'm watching this girl literally get abused because I know in the real world outside of the performance she's giving she's getting abused and it's because Kubrick and his partner wrote her that way. In the book, she does a lot more than just cry and scream and placate her husband and child. She does have opinions. She does have thoughts in the book and even the remake. And so to write her as the victim and then force her into that role on set, I I need us to put him on the list of people we have to stop claiming are geniuses. But will America do that? Of course not. I guess we segue into Stephen King himself now. <laughs> Um, So Stephen King is very open about the shining themes of alcoholism and abuse because that's where he was at a time in his life when he documented it, which is why this could have been a beautiful film and it could have been done in an artistic manner. Um, However, it was done this way and Stephen King hated it. (laughs) He hated it so much that he paid out of pocket for a remake in 97 with Stephen Weber, aka Brian from Wings, to not have this be the only version of The Shining out there on film. <laughs> um, even sure. Stephen King was like, that movie was misogynistic. As much as we want to focus on Kubrick, um, Stephen King has problems of his own. For instance, has anyone ever told him that n- all non-white people aren't magical? We're not. I, I swear we're not. Maybe a few of us. I had never not. thought of that until I read your note and I was like, so <laughs> 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 true. It's true. Well, As someone who read so much Stephen King in their life, I have tubs of it in a different place in Indiana that I'm waiting to get back so I can read them and see if I need to like, just get rid of them. He only writes non-white people as magical. Every time he comes for anybody BIPOC, they're magical. 
and they talk in a very, very old world way because they're not here with us in 2020. They're still in 1940s. And so it's lots of, I just, I, I want to sit down with Steven, but also he's becoming into his own privilege in his later years on his Twitter. Like you, me, and Ava DuVernay were dragging him together at one point, <laughs> even though <laughs> we don't know her, she doesn't know us. But like he definitely has a different opinion than the rest of us on representation. And he let that be known and he let it sit for hours on end. And after so many famous people dragged him, he was like, but also, I'm like, no, no, for five hours, this is where you stood. <laughs> don't, but also me, don't do it, Steven, don't. Also, spoiler alert, not really spoiler alert. I don't know what the word would be. Um, forewarning. Uh, I have never read The Shining. So I know, I know nothing of the book. So you might have to enlighten me of some things as we get into it. Gladly. Because as much as I'm like pissing on Steven, what Kubrick did to his work is an abomination. Um, <laughs> it just is. Well, because it, as, as problematic as Stephen King can be, especially in his earlier years, he's still a good writer like you know he's, yeah. one those, he's one of those that he's not at he's not problematic to the level of stanley kubrick where he's abusive no. people he just Different said he, he, <laughs> he said some stupid shit and he did some made some questionable artistic choices yeah he's got some biases like most old white men but he's not actively abusing people as far as i know like if he's doing it let me know i'll do a rebuttal tonight but like <laughs> i i his biases and his issues with magical BIPOC people aside, he can give us a narrative and we can follow it. And there's more to it than what this movie gave, mm -hmm. especially because it goes back to what we've been saying about how Hollywood and horror specifically treats addiction um, and abuse. And so, yeah, we will definitely be having some asides as we go through The Shining. Let's go, let's, let's jump on in. Awesome. Uh, also, just another warning to everyone out there listening, if you, if you haven't watched The Shining and you don't want spoilers, hit the little pause button, go to your TV, find it somewhere, I don't know where it is, I have it on DVD because I have everything. It's on Showtime. It's on Showtime and watch it. All right, now we're going to get into it. So, um, I love the opening shot. I think that it's really well done. I think that it sets the movie up in a good way um it is a little bit long i will give such as the movie <laughs> this movie could have stood about 30 minutes taken out of it in my Easily. opinion but yes i thought it was really unsettling the score helped as well in that moment just setting up the film and like the, the tone it was really nice my first thought was another damn creepy kid um <laughs> We meet Wendy and Danny um, in the apartment for a scene that has no real sustenance in the way it's written and directed. In the book, they give backstory when you go to Wendy and Danny hanging out. Here, it's just like, are you excited for this thing? Not really. What's Tony think? Tony's my creepy friend. I'm going to smoke my cigarette and watch it through cereal. Da -da -da -da. <laughs> and I'm just like, we didn't need that. Cut that right now. What? <laughs> There's five minutes cut out right now. But we don't even get the backstory of who is Jack in the situation and why are they this way. Something interesting about the kid I read online, apparently as abusive as he as Stanley Kubrick was to Shelley, he loved this little boy. He shielded him from a lot of his a lot of the film. So later on in the film, when you, after he's been strangled, 
and she carries him out of the room, that's not him. It's a body. It's a dummy, because he didn't want him on. He didn't want the child to be in any kind of traumatic scene. He was the child was told the actor was told that he was in a drama, and he wasn't even allowed to watch the movie, an unedited version of the film, until his seventeenth birthday. I see that as another argument for misogyny at play because he's like, shield this child, abuse that bitch. Right. Also, perhaps he was shielding him from these scenes because he knew it was going to be 127 takes. <laughs> and I don't know what the child acting laws were in the day, but I'm sure that would not have flown. That's a good point. I mean, we also see that in houses where the father's very abusive towards the mother and then leaves the kids alone. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to the patriarchy, either way we trace it. So then we go with Jack to his interview. Oh, let me just say before we get too far, because I have a note later on, but I'll say it now. The cut scenes when it like just cuts and it's like two days or 8 a.m. or the next month, those are really effective in some places. They're really jarring because they just take you out of the momentum of the scene, which I think was his intended point. So that is something I do think is effective in this movie. It might be it's one technique I'm okay with. So now we're back with Jack and his in the interview to get this position. The head boss was like, secretary, who, which is what she was called. I don't know if she has a real name. Secretary, go out and get me Bill and make us some coffee. And Bill comes in with no lines, just sitting there staring creepily at Jack and boss man. And I'm just like, do you have a purpose, sir? And here's where my problems with Jack begin. <laughs> the first line he asked, <laughs> or one of. Um, uh, I, let me just preface this. If you're out there listening and you can defend anything that Jack does, and I'm talking about the character, not the actor. I know it's weird. Anything Jack does in this film, you need to check yourself because this man is abusive from point one to point end the entire time. In the interview, he speaks for his wife says, oh, she will be fine. She'll get over it. She loves horror films and, and ghost stories. Clearly, people who love horror films and ghost stories just want to be in one. They want to yeah. live in a haunted house. Uh, no, thank you. I'm good. I want to live somewhere safe. That's why I watch them, so I can run from the killers. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> but when he started talking for his wife, I was like, okay, dude. Like, no. No, sir. You're done. I will also say that that is one of the first asides we need to, well, the second aside we need to have, aside from Wendy and Danny being throwaway in this movie, their situation at the top, is that in the book, Jack has more of a struggle and there's more of a person there. Whereas here, he comes in creepy and he just escalates in the creepiness. But in the book, he really does have that fight with his addiction and when he better. And when he fucked up earlier with his son and his wife, and this is like their last shot to be a real family, so there's pressure. Mm -hmm. And we don't get that here because it's just Kubrick being a misogynist. And so... I, I, yeah, that's one of my problems with the whole pacing of the film. I wish they would have made me like Jack before he started to go into insanity. Because I, I didn't like him the entire time. I didn't care. I was telling her to get out from day uno. <laughs> right? No, we, we don't get that. And... That is part of the reason why I'm upset with the Wendy Danny first scene being such a throwaway here because it sets up nothing, it explains nothing. Um, and then you have Jack coming in creepy, he's at a 10 immediately. And I, I want that nuance, I want those breadcrumbs, I want to know what this family's been through. I don't want to just be like, Well, he's awful, so this is going to be bad. <laughs> 
I want to fight with him. I want to fight for him. And he puts up no fight me. So why should I? Right, right. exactly. Yeah. Why do I care? I mean, I care about her, of course, but like the film spends 99% of its, well, 70% of its time focusing on Jack and I don't care about Jack. No, which is misogyny again. It's just like, even if they don't want it, we're going to give it to him because he's a man. <laughs> right. Whereas you could have made the wife interesting like the book did and we could have followed her journey perhaps instead of her always dancing around and being polite and trying to serve these two men in her life. And I just, that is weak writing. And the fact that that duo came back with that script, I, I would never support them again as a producer. Um, but back to this creepy kid, this finger, because so Danny has a friend, a little boy who lives in his mouth and he talks to him in a weird voice by wagging his finger at himself. And so- <laughs> I found out was the, the actor's choice. The actor did it in his first audition and they kept it. <laughs> I, I feel like that could have been a time to direct someone to make a different choice. <laughs> cause I don't get the finger, especially cause he's like, Tony lives in my mouth. And I'm like, well, if he's in your mouth, why is your finger out here? I don't understand what's going on. But it was the seventies people were starved for horror and so nobody questioned it apparently and i'm just an asshole <laughs> it was wild it was a wild time so then uh yes he's talking to tony in the bathroom before he brushes his teeth tony the, the guy the little boy that lives in his mouth does not want to go to this hotel and he asks him why and then we get the cut scene of it this is shown in like almost every oh, horror montage ever made with the uh, elevator doors open, the huge flood of blood comes out. And the next thing we know, we're having a home visit by the doctor. Did doctors make house calls in the late 70s? I don't know if it was 78 or 79, because the movie was filmed forever. <laughs> but I know it came out in 1980. So like, were they making house calls that late in the 70s? And the aesthetic of this apartment is very late 70s. <laughs> Ain't it though? I was like, ooh, I've seen this teen magazine. <laughs> well, that red and white, that red and blue, that blue dress with the red uh, long sleeve, that was a choice. <laughs> She's constantly smoking in these like sweater coverall combinations. I'm just like, aren't you hot, Wendy? Aren't you hot? I'm uncomfortable watching you do this. Yeah, and like the when when Danny says, the little boy that lives in my mouth, I do not understand why that doctor was not like, uh, the fuck? That's when you take the little boy out of the home. You're just like, I don't know what's going on here, <laughs> but it's not right. Right. I mean, he's clearly created this from abuse, which we find out later is happened before. Um, yeah. Speaking of, um, the doctor starts asking questions, and Wendy tells a cute little story of how Jack dislocated Danny's shoulder once. Right. And if you look at the way Shelly plays this scene and look at the way she talks about her issues with Kubrick in that documentary on YouTube, it is the same. <laughs> it is literally the same language. It is the same voice. It is the same asides, which proves that she is a magnificent actress <laughs> because she was able to be like, well, from my real life experiences now, I can pull this. Right. And she, yeah, so we find out that there is a pattern of abuse, which we see continued. Does that happen in the book? In the book, that was like a turning point because he'd been He'd been an alcoholic for a while. He also had his own daddy issues. And so like, when he dislocates his son's arm, that's when Wendy's like, get your shit together, Jack, or we're done. 
And so that's when he starts getting clean and he starts looking for new jobs and he's trying to like apologize to his son and make it up. And we don't get that here. We never talk about it with him until like we're accusing him of hurting him again. I feel like, yes, this is definitely one of those times where it's just like the male narrative, especially the male white narrative, because that's what Stephen King excels at. However, it, there is a beautiful story in there and we lose it in this Kubrick version. And I'm not about it. Yeah. Yeah, and like the fact that so we go into this in the what is this the first twenty minutes of the movie? He's yeah. already, so now Jack has already spoken for his wife and assumed what she wanted, forced her into the situation, and we find out he has hurt his son before. Yes, three strikes. All I'm saying. And we have another two hours and thirty minutes with him. Right. <laughs> so moving on. Um, we find all that out, and then we just skip to their go to the hotel. I do have okay. a note that I do think it's a very interesting choice to teach your son about the Donner Party. Ain't it though? Ain't <laughs> On it. your way to a secluded, abandoned hotel that you're going to be staying at for five months in the winter. And this little boy's like, it's okay, mommy. I know what cannibalism is. With his friend in his mouth and his weird finger and voices, no. I would be turning the car around. I would be done. Yeah. It, it, well, he learned about it on the TV. Remember? In the 70s? <laughs> I don't know what they were showing in the 70s. but that's... They had future cable back then, apparently. <laughs> HBO was there. <laughs> um, yeah. And then we find <laughs> out, when we get there, we find out that this hotel... Uh, Stephen King loves Native American. Does he though? Because <laughs> he keeps writing about them, but he keeps he doing it wrong. <laughs> exactly. But the minute I find out this hotel was built on a, a Native American burial ground, I'm out. Deuces. I ain't taking the job. I ain't staying here for five months. No, literally, poltergeist. Nothing good comes from that. Like, first off, we're all on Native American land because America's bullshit. But to like be specifically on a burial ground, yes, the cacacity, the cacacity to build a ski lodge on a Native American burial ground, and we go straight in from that into the magical Negro of the film, um, which I feel so bad. Um, I feel so bad. Oh, Halloran did not need to be this way, but here we go. <laughs> I thought his performance was okay. It's not the actor. It's the way the character was written and what happens to the character. Almost and none of my complaints is the acting of this film. No. Almost none of them. No, because the actors were working with what they were given in an abusive environment. And they still turned out really amazing performances. However, I want to like just pause right here to be like, I at this time in my life as a child, when I saw this old movie, I had bluffed my way into getting the truth about Santa Claus. I had figured out the tooth fairy, but still wanted the money. But yet I somehow believed that this man who was packing these bags to leave this hellish environment would live to the end of the movie because I was still somehow innocent. You were hopeful. I, I, was, I was a naive fool, baby. Yes, so we meet, well, how do you say his name again? O'Halloran. O'Halloran. Yeah, um, who is immediately sent back to the kitchen with Wendy and the son while Jack sees all the important stuff. That's a choice, misogyny. Ain't it though? Because only she can cook. Well, and then this is also, well, yeah, this is pretty close to when we find out about The Shining. Yes. Um, which I do think is interesting. I wish, and I'm sure it does in the book, but I wish they would have 
dug a little deeper into that. I'm curious. I haven't seen the remake in a long time. Um, and I want to, I, I feel like I want to rewatch it because I don't, I, I don't fully understand what this, the shining is. And it's the title of the fucking movie. And I don't understand it. <laughs> this movie threw it aside to get back into the misogyny of it. And so we also, he tells us that his grandmother told him about it and he has it and she had it. So I, if this is biological or hereditary, where is it coming from? How does it work? Like, I don't know. It, it just, it, it's a missed opportunity for me. This movie does no justice to The Shining whatsoever. They just wanted the Stephen King name attached, I felt. <laughs> um, in the book, there's so much more because we've all seen a Stephen King novel. They're thicker than Bibles. He gets into detail for everything. The curtain gets 10 pages. So you know The Shining had a few chapters. I grew up on Stephen King. I, I think I told you my first novel was Salem's Lot. And I snuck it in with the Babysitter's Club and the Fear Streets. Um, I, I wanted to be Stephen King when I was a child because I really liked horror and I had not understood yet how he's not writing the best women <laughs> and all of his BIPOC people are magical. That hadn't clicked for me. I was like, horror, yes, want it. Um, I have some unpacking to do when I get those books back from my friend who's holding onto my books. Right. And I'm worried, I'm very afraid. <laughs> All right, so we also find out about Room 237, which we also- Room 217. Oh. Yeah. I wonder why they changed that. The place where they were filming was worried if they used 217, nobody would rent that room anymore. However, people who read the book were like, it should have been 217, I want 217. Do they not have a 237? No. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Which, I mean, as big as those bathrooms are, they, space is limited. <laughs> but we'll get to that later. Yeah, we'll get to that. But so we find out about two, room 237. They, again, something they just scratch on over. There's no plot development there. We just know that it's a room and that uh, Hallerman is scared of it. Even though he says he's not scared of anything. And this, this is the moment that I think his performance was really strong. He had to do this scene so many times. At one point, he stopped and started crying. Oh gosh. And then I hate to say it, that it was strong, but it was, but God, I, God, oh, abuse. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but the work can be good, even if there was abuse involved, you know. If your actors are professionals, they're going to pull it out no matter what, but what should they have to endure is the question. Exactly, 100%. But um, I do think, because when he's talking about how he's not scared of anything in this in this place, and then Danny says, well, what about room 237? His the choice of his chain, like the change that he makes there is very specific and strong. Um, so my idea, and maybe if this is in the book, let me know, is room 217 or 237, is that where the guy before killed his kids and wife? I actually don't remember what specifically went down because in the book we get so many stories of the things that have happened in this hotel. Like there's so many more. We gloss over everything, even the previous caretaker in this movie. But in the book, they all get a moment. And so you're just like, oh, this one, oh, this one, oh, this one. And we don't get that here. We get the previous caretaker mentioned. We get the creepy daughter twins. We get this woman in this room and we don't get a whole lot else. But like- I, I assume that the two daughters, I mean, clearly the two girls are his daughters. Oh yeah. And the yeah. woman in the bathtub is his wife. Yes. In the book, I don't believe they were twins. I think twins happened when they were casting this film. Yeah, no, back to Jack being an ass. 
this they take so much away from his character while also pissing on Wendy's character because like we've been saying he has no subtlety he is just like now that we're here let me show my full ass whereas in the book he was still trying and when he would like have these random outbursts because of the haunted hotel they're in he would apologize he would make it up and he would promise to do better and he's still trying to connect with his son and his wife and here he's just your typical misogynist asshole yeah and his descent and it, 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 well, there's no subtlety to it mm -mm. he's well one he's just creepy the whole time and then he just gets angry and creepy. Uh, yeah. Jack Nicholson is one of those actors, and we all know them, or we've all seen them, where they don't know how to not be creepy. Like, even when he's doing comedies, there's a little bit of creepiness to it. Like, I've seen some of his later stuff, and I'm just like, this is funny, but also, I'm afraid of him. And that's just his demeanor. Maybe he's also a Gemini. Maybe I should fact check that before we follow up with any more of his movies. Accusations. <laughs> <laughs> um... So, yes, he's, he's just such an asshole. So, like, why, if you want to be left alone to do your work, why the fuck do you set up your work in the middle of the foyer or living space or, like, this huge area where it looks like you're gonna, someone is going to have to pass through there to get to somewhere else? He basically took up a whole-ass lobby and was like, this is my writing corner. And it's like, that's not a corner, sir. Right. <laughs> let's talk about how that is so stereotypical of straight white cis men taking up space taking up space and then telling women and other minorities that they have no place there i will say again technically i do see why people think this this film is strong there are some really beautiful shots specifically the shot of it's danny and uh wendy they're watching television danny's on the floor she's on the couch the TV's in front of this huge window. You see the snow. It's it's gorgeous. There are gorgeous shots in this film. It doesn't mean you get to be an ass and abusive. You can have gorgeous shots without it all, especially because, like, we could have had it all had we not abused Shelly and we'd given Wendy some agency and some backbone. I would have even gone with Jack being an ass from the top. I would have gone with it had we given her more to do than cry and scream. And having her do those takes those many times had to have hurt. So Jack has descended into madness. This little boy, after looking at this TV and this thing you just talked about, is like, I want my fire truck. And he talks to his mom to let him go up to the room to get it, knowing that Jack is up there asleep and Jack is abusive right now. Well, the little boy goes up there and Jack's like, come here. And he's, and not asleep. he's just sitting there staring, being creepy. Just being creepy as you do with the overlook. And like, they have this weird exchange, the little boy's uncomfortable, and he says, you wouldn't hurt mommy and me. And there is a long ass pause. And then Jack comes back with, what do you mean? Which is another parenting fail here. That is not how you answer that question. <laughs> Even if you are just in the madness and you are being possessed by a hotel, there are better ways to answer that question. Well, also let's talk about the moment when Jack says, do you like this? Do you like the hotel? And he says, uh, do you, Jack says very much. He said, what about you? And he says, I, I, I guess so. And then Jack says, I wish we could stay here forever. Nope. And ever, and ever, and ever. Nope, nope, nope. Nobody asked for that, Jack. Um, that's when I would have been like, we have to leave now. Speaking of, why is Wendy doing the caretaking, the cooking and raising the child and tiptoeing around Jack's moods while he sits at his typewriter doing nothing all day? Right. He took this job. He took this job. Why is he not in the basement fighting with the furnace? Yeah. What? 
Why are the little girls British? But I feel like that was a fuck up because like, I want to say they filmed somewhere in England, which is why Shelly was away from her family and friends for 13 months. Um, I want to say it was somewhere in England. And so like, instead of them doing casting, not in England, <laughs> they were like, yeah, now that we're here, let's find some locals. But we're in Colorado. How many British people end up in Colorado caretaking at a hotel in the 70s? Right, especially when we meet the father later on, he is not British. Right? And the mother is not British. Right? What she, what is she I don't think she think we met her in this one. She's, I think she's the woman in the bathtub. I think it's a separate woman, but I can't be sure because this movie's so choppy. It's fair. I just assumed that. In the book, I don't think it was the same woman, but also it's been a while. Here, I have no way of knowing who the mother is because women are not important in Stanley Kubrick's world. And I just assume that the two girls are his girls because he had two girls around that age. In the book, I believe they were his, which is why the British accent was confusing in this movie. Well, and I think that, again, another reason why I just don't think this movie is as strong as people think it is, there's no... we shouldn't be asking these questions. No. It would be clear if, if these ghosts are supposed to take some kind of prominent spot, it should be clear who they are, what they are, why they're there, what's going on. Or they need to be part of a mass of ghosts. There just needs to be fucking ghosts everywhere, like Haunting of Hill House and like all that shit. In the book, there were so many dead people and ghosts tripping over people. It was magnificent. And I wish that that could have been this movie, but here we are. Back to Jack. So Jack is screaming in his typewriter area of a lobby that he told him not to come into. So of course, Wendy runs to him because she's a good, dutiful wife who has only her husband and her son at her heart. And that's all she knows because she's a woman. Why does she have agency or opinions? Um, so she gets to Jack, and Jack is finally calmed down because she's, like, worked her magic. And he tells her this story of this dream he just had that made him scream, where he chopped her and Danny up into little pieces. Time to go. Time to go. Why are we still... You chopped who and who? Never mind. Um, <laughs> I will say, for Shelley Duvall, I, as an actress, and her, like, speaking voice and tone and demeanor... I really like her for the beginning of this film in the story where she is kind of supposed to be this very sweet, nurturing person. But as about this point and later throughout the movie, I wish she, I wish she would have been able to have a supportive director and be able to really find the moment where she finds her strength. But since she, she was being abused behind the, script, behind the scenes, there's no way that she could have done that in front of the screen when the script is not there for it the script is there to have her be a victim yeah. which i have issues with that as we know because i feel like a lot of the horror genre is written by older white cis men who are straight and they just want to see women as victims and that's something we all need to unpack and ask why we're going to make these movies in the year 2020 still while she's comforting jack from his nightmare of killing her and her son <laughs> her son turns up and she's like, go to your room, mind me, go to your room, mind me. And she doesn't understand that something traumatic has happened. And so she gets close to him and she's like, oh no, what's happened? And something has clearly come for his neck and his shoulder and he's sucking his thumb and he is looking into the future because he is no longer here. And she hugs him because that's how you fix that. Also in the book, 
this was one of the moments where the hotel tried to come for him for his skill and his shining. And so there should have been more of that. Instead, we cut away from it and we leave him in this room. And so like, this is when she's finally like, you heard him, Jack, you heard him, you did it again. But of course she still has no agency. So it's very weak and very victim-y. Yeah, this is one of the things that Stephen King as a writer and storyteller does the best. He sets up these really terrifying scenes it would have been terrifying to watch him, to watch Danny go into this room and see all these terrible things. But I think that goes back to Stanley was overly protective of this child and did not want him in any kind of scary scene whatsoever. If that's the case, don't do the film. Exactly. That's the story. (laughs) Also, if you're going to take a Stephen King, you need to adapt in a way that does the story justice as opposed to you just having it be your own self-masturbatory, I hate women thesis. Because there's ways of doing that to not traumatize a child. There's so many kids in horror movies. It could have been done with a better writer. Stanley Kubrick is a hack writer as top of being an asshole. I said it. All righty. I would also like to give a shout out to Lloyd who is the quickest ghost bartender in the land. <laughs> I, as someone who bartended at a Chicago theater that shall remain nameless because it's an awful place. Um, I know how long it takes to set up and restock a bar and get it ready for sales. And Lloyd is just like using all of his dark magic to make it happen in the blink of an eye. All right, in this dialogue with Lloyd, there are some terrible lines hmm. and some, I think some decent foreshadowing. So for one, before we even get to the really problematic lines, Jack literally says, I'd give my soul for a drink. And he gets a drink. But let's also talk about how Jack is drinking Jack Daniels on the rocks and using the phrase white man's burden. So we are done trying to like him for this movie if we haven't already given up. I gave it, like I said, I gave up the first line. And if you didn't, you need to check this out. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. We also now, find out Jack was five months sober. And we find out here, which is like the midpoint of the movie. And this is information we should have had towards the top. Okay, and this is my confusion. I had a confusing moment with this, especially when after I read your note. Because he says five months on the wagon. Number one, is that a, is that a reference to the Donner Party? Number two, I, she said earlier in the movie that he hasn't touched a drop since the incident, which was years ago. And he said five months. And don't get me wrong, I, I have not read this book in forever, so I don't want people in my DMs coming for me. But I think what happened is he fell off the wagon a couple of times, but because him and Wendy were working on things and he was trying to put in the effort, she let it go, but got him back into those meetings and she was helping him get clean. And so this was like five months and this vacation and this over the hotel was another way of getting him away from the alcohol. Um, because like he, when they're showing them the hotel in the, towards the top, he's like, oh yeah, we don't drink. When they mention the bar, all the alcohol has to go for insurance purposes. And he says, we don't drink. And I'm just like, that's a reference to the alcoholism. And it's the only one I've gotten so far, Kubrick. Whereas in the book, there's so much more. Yeah. Other than, uh, Wendy saying in the beginning that he was, came home drunk. Yeah. Those two. Yeah. Like I... As someone who has alcoholics in her family, I I am drawn to the themes in the actual book because it, it does deal with that battle in a way that's more humane and less judgmental 
and it doesn't sugarcoat it and sweep it under the rug, this is a real struggle. It's, he's not only struggling for his soul in this whole tale, but also his sobriety. Um, we also get the beautiful line, the sperm bank upstairs. Isn't that just lovely? Like, if that don't make my knees weak, what does? You know, it also, I would like to point out, it's sad because the other play, the other screenwriter, writer with, with Stanley on this was a woman. <laughs> granted, granted, I'm sure he was just as abusive to her as he was to his actors. Um, oh, yeah. and she probably had no agency to be able to tell him, hey, let's not call women sperm banks. To be fair, I don't know if that's in the book or not. That might be a Stephen Kingism. I want to give it to Kubrick because I don't like Kubrick, but also Stephen, as much as his version of Wendy is better than this one, he still has some white manisms in his work. Let's talk about how this is not Jack Nicholson's best work in this scene and knowing he to do it for eternity and is probably still doing it somewhere <laughs> makes me so sad. Because I've, I've seen so much Jack Nicholson. He was my first Joker in the 80s Batman with Michael Keaton. I, I would ride and die for Jack Nicholson when I was a child. And so for me to see this and see this being definitely one of the days where he was like, I'm fucking done with this shit. I'm saying my lines, get out of my face. It hurts me because this is a moment in Jack, not Jack Nicholson's, but like <laughs> the character Jack's <laughs> descent where he decides to take this a drink after all of the shit that's happened in this hotel and so for but really for to him not a lot has happened in the movie now in the book it's probably very different but in the movie he's been rude to his wife yeah what else has happened to him you can see him going crazy but like before lloyd he hasn't seen any ghosts he hasn't had any kind of scary thing happen to him he had a dream mm -hmm where he saw himself killing his wife and his son. Which is another reason why him taking this drink feels false, because in the book, he does see things and he does wonder about things. And so much more is happening to push him for that drink, because the hotel knows he's an addict. And it's messing with him. It's trying to get at him to get him to drink and to get him to like murder his wife and son, who he's just reprioritized as being the like, number one thing in his life. And he's trying to get clean for them. And to not see that struggle before he sits down with Lloyd and it's just like the sperm bank upstairs and does like a weird <laughs> one man show on a bar stool. I just, ah, I hated it. I hated it. I would have cut it just because they didn't earn it. Yeah, I, I agree. They didn't earn it. I mean, I don't think they could have cut it and kept the story, <laughs> you know. What is but, the story in this movie? <laughs> but this story sounds like it could have been a really fantastic film. They just did not have the right voice behind it to tell it. And girl, we're, we're being so controversial right now. We're going to get some opinions on this one. I got a feeling. Um, back to this bar. <laughs> yes. Well, we got, we're, uh, I think that's all we have about the bar. No, no, no. Wendy comes in oh, yeah. um, with a baseball bat and she sees Jack talking to no one because there's no one there. Um, Lloyd is not real. The alcohol is not real. But Jack is drunk-ish. And she runs in with her baseball bat and it's like, Jack, someone tried to strangle our son. There's a woman in the building. And he starts to gaslight her. And because <laughs> that's what abusers do. And he's like, no, there's nobody else. Are you stupid woman? Because of course women are stupid. And so she's like, no, he, he she's tried to strangle her son. And my first thought was, I'm not a mother. I'm not very maternal. But if someone tried to strangle my son, would I leave him alone in the hotel to go find the father who's abusive and having a moment? 
even I know that's that's a stretch. <laughs> yes. So now we get to go to Hollerman's bedroom, which some choices, some choices. The only black women in this film, in this whole fucking universe, are the nudes on Halloran's walls in his bedroom in Florida. And also, why does this full-grown, older gentleman have naked women on his walls? Like, I expect that from an 18, 17, 16-year-old, you are, he's clearly in his, like, 40s. At least, at least. Like, this is one of the few times if our listeners can relate, I don't want them in our DMs, I don't want to know. I don't want, that is is for you. I'm sorry if you feel attacked and judged. I don't need to know you have naked anybody's on your walls at this late in the game. Um. (laughs) I mean, I will say, like, they were, they weren't, like, pornographic, in my opinion. They were more artistic, but, 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 but 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 <laughs> the fact that there are no other women of color in this movie aside from those in these pictures on his wall is my issue had there been black women actually no Kubrick doesn't deserve black women I also want to just tie this into today's conversations because we're all like oh how dare Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion do WAP but like also you have all these people out here with these booty dancers in their videos who are men and we're fine with it like I've heard so many men in rap and other forms of music talk about women and degrading manners my entire life and I will until the day I die. I have been screaming about this for years, the double standard of sexual sexual uh, sexuality in men and women. Which is another reason why this makes me upset that we only see black women on O'Halloran's on Halloran's walls. The only black women we see are sexualized. They have no saying, they have no agency, they have no lines. They are literally props, literally using black women for props. And they were chosen to be there by a white straight man. Fetishizing much, Mr. Kubrick? Are we? Are we? Oh, we're making all the statements here. I'm here for it. <laughs> like, the title of this one should just be like, I hate Stanley Kubrick, get in line. We go back to, so we, we're done with Holloman for the moment. Well, he has a moment where he clearly has some psychic connection, shining connection with Danny, and he freaks out. Um, I would have thought this scene would have been more effective, because to me, he's freaking out because of the, the, the house moment when, he gets, when Danny gets strangled, right? Danny reaches out to him. I don't remember the book. I wish that I had time to like get my books back and reread it before this one. But there was more of a connection and there was more to this than what we saw in this movie. I know that much for sure. Okay. Well, like every time else, the book is better. To me, in, in uh, watching it, I felt like this was his reaction to the moment of Danny in 237. I want to say it, because it takes so long to get from Florida to Colorado, especially in the late 70s, I want to say Danny reached out either before that moment in the room or right when that room happened. But like the way this is told, it's like way after the fact. And I, it, that timeline makes no sense to me. Right, but I think that the scene should have taken place. So like, okay, in the movie, Danny goes, he puts his hand on the door and starts to turn it and it goes to, and then it switches to Jack crying or screaming. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you should have switched from that to Hollerman having this freak out moment. Because then you would have at least gotten an idea of the horror that Danny is going through in that room. I, 
that might be how it happens in the book. I really don't know if it's before the room or during the room, but in the book, Danny does reach out. Listen, I'm not saying that I'm a better storyteller than Stanley Kubrick, but I'm not I will. saying that. This <laughs> <laughs> Chipotle napkin I've had to toss away the better storyteller than Kubrick. I... All right, so we go from um, Hollerman freaking out to Jack investigating 237. <laughs> so Jack goes in the room 237, and we clearly see this naked woman in the bathtub, which is a trope that I always reference because it happens so often. So I love the fact that the first time we encounter it on this podcast is this movie. Um, and because she's so naked, he forgets that no one else is here and or she might have tried to single his son and he has to make out with her because she's so naked in this big ass bathroom. First off, this over the hotel, how much do these rooms cost? This bathroom is bigger than anything I've ever lived in. My current apartment's not that big. Can we talk about the fact that he walks into this room and it's gorgeous. It's like super br- huge, huge bathroom, huge bathtub. Look at their apartment. It looks like I don't, like your closet. <laughs> right? I have yet to live in anything. as big. I had a whole half of a house with Troy Battle in Lubbock, Texas. That was not as big as a damn bathroom. Uh-huh. I am upset. <laughs> I am upset. I will tag him to be like, Troy, <laughs> we were overpaying. We could live in a bathroom and had more space. <laughs> but like, okay, so yeah, and like they get this dinky, they don't even have a door to their bedroom. Did you notice that? They got a curtain. <laughs> their kid is just walking around in their shit. Like if they were, if they were in a better place in their marriage, that's uncomfortable. Cause you have a curtain and your son. What if they want to have some 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 a lovey time right right what if they were in a better place what if that would have been a different movie it would have been a different movie (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so he forgets that there's this hotel is supposed to be empty he's just like boobs the joey problem from nightmare on elm street (laughs) boobs and everything goes away literally jack you're supposed to be secluded in this like snowed in hotel and if there is a woman in the hotel, she tried to like murder your son like five minutes ago. And you're just like, boobs. Also, how did this bitch break in and get in this bathtub without you noticing when you were supposed to be the caretaker? I would have questions. I'm sorry. I know that like boobs are magical for cis hetero men. <laughs> um, it's so magical that they can't focus on anything else. Like we've established my love of a Hemsworth. If a Hemsworth appears magically in my bathroom, I will have questions. <laughs> I, I don't know what I'd do. <laughs> I mean, I know what I would do, but I'd ask these questions first. <laughs> All right. So, yes. Yeah, so he kisses her, because that's fine to do when you're married. Got his hands all over this dead bitch. <laughs> he is like, oh, dead women. Oh, boo. Looks in the mirror. She got missing skin. She got missing skin. Not <laughs> only that, she's got a whole different body type. <laughs> she older like it's not what he wanted he did not <laughs> he what he saw and what he got are two different things it's like the picture on the microwave meal when the suggested photo <laughs> and then when you put that tv dinner in there and pull it out <laughs> and he was upset <laughs> he was upset this reaction scene takes so long he like backs out of this room for 30 seconds and then shuts the door um but it takes literally, I think, a minute to get through all that. Like, I, I don't need it. I don't. Nobody needs. It. Literally, we send people back out of a room and close the door. I, I could have just assumed that's what happened. 
I would have turned around and ran. Literally. <laughs> there are better chase scenes in the world, okay? Cut it. But then after that, he goes back to the bar. Because <laughs> if you make out with a dead bitch, you got to go back to the bar. In his defense, I'm here for this bar visit. <laughs> if I see dead people, I'm going to have a drink. Like, I, it's the end of days. It's Armageddon. All bets are off. And this time, though, there's tons of dead ghosts around. All over the place. Like rabbits, they've multiplied. Okay, so then he goes to the bar after he made out with a dead lady. Um, which, I, as you said, I don't blame him for. This is the drink that I, I respect. The first one, especially the way this movie's edited and written, I, I don't understand and I don't sympathize. This one, I'm just like, that would do it. That would be a trigger, yes. You made out with a dead woman in a bathroom. Do what you need to do to cope for that. <laughs> Um, so, well, this time he comes in there and there's this huge party happening and he doesn't think anything is wrong. He just, it's, it's fine. It's normal, right? Yeah. Um, and then he gets a drink and what's the damn bartender's name again? Stanley. Lloyd. Lloyd. Well, who's Stanley? You want him to be Stanley because that's just a good bartender name. <laughs> you know. Maybe it's Lloyd Stanley. <laughs> Maybe so. So Lloyd gives him a drink and he starts to pay for it. And he says, your um, drink is paid for, but he won't tell him who paid for it. So he freaks out. He gets some, some food spilled on him and him and his waiter go to the bathroom. So this is the first time we've seen this bathroom and it's a nice ass bathroom. Can we talk about he, that for a second? He put his fucking drink on the urinal though, which I mean, I, I have not experienced the trauma of the Overlake Hotel personally, but I know that my drinks don't go on toilets and urinals. My drink is in my hand. In his defense, I have seen, going back to our Warrensburg days, back in the Berg, at the good old Tipsy Tower. Oh, my home. <laughs> where our love flourished. Um, men would go in there and use the urinal and there would be this shelf above the urinal and they would put their drinks on the shelf. I always finish my drink before going to the bathroom because I don't want to take a drink into the bathroom. It's not appetizing anymore. People are shitting in there. I don't want that near my drink. My drink is my baby. It's a fair point. Anyway, so we find out this waiter that has dumped the food on him is none other than the caretaker before him who, we, who he found out earlier had killed his wife and children. And he's uh -huh. like kind of okay with this. He's, I mean, he's kind of weirded out by it, but he's not freaked out by it. He's not. As a matter of fact, he's so comfortable with him that they dropped the N-word together three times in a row. Three times in a row we use the N-word. Yes, because this is when the moment happens when the guy lets in on, a, 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 like you said, the little dot of the mixer and the alcohol. That, the, that his son has an ability that he is unaware of and the house or the hotel is interested in this boy's power. Um, and, and then he says that he's reached out to someone, Hollerman, and then they repeat the N-word three times. Literally. It was like, he just said it, so I'm going to say it. Well, he I, just said it, so I'm going to say it again. This white dude said it, so I can say it, right? I right? Just, if your story is not directly uh, addressing racism or our racist past as a country, don't put the word in the, in the thing. Don't, don't use it. Especially because 
I assume there's already the racism there. You don't have to like connect any dots for me. I see these two old white men in the bathroom holding drinks, talking about the guy who's coming. I know the guy is black. I assume there's a level of racism there. Like if they had not dropped the N-word, I would still assume it. I don't know if that's for like Aunt Patsy who might be like, the world's post-racial or what? But like, <laughs> we don't need it. We and, don't need it. And I get that this movie, was late 70s came out in at 1980s a different world but people are still making excuses for it today and i think we need to call it out for what it is even if you like the movie you still should call it out i like a lot of problematic things buffy the vampire slayer but i own up to the fact that it's problematic now and some of the people created are problematic however this one i don't know if it's stephen king or not because stephen king as i've said many times is a very white privileged man who writes what he knows. So that could have been the one thing Kubrick was like, I'll keep that, because I'm racist too. And so- <laughs> yeah, Especially early. I think, I, like you said in the beginning of the episode, I do think uh, Stephen King has gotten better as the times have changed. Not perfect by any stretch, but better. He gets better in some places and he gets worse in others. Right. I, I do think that he would he would do better to have people help him out with his sensitivity because like I've definitely heard some newer Stephen King and whenever he has people chanting I know it's racist and I feel it in my bones and he does it a lot <laughs> but anyways and I think but I do think that we got to call that out and say and, do, and just for the future and present if you are writing something and again it is not directly addressing racism and you're not black don't use the word Right. Because you're probably, even if you're using it with the best intentions, you're probably not using it in the right way. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they were not. Um, they go on from the N-word to talk about how Jack should have a talking to to his wife. And this other previous caretaker had to have his wife and children corrected. Because we also wanted to shove in some sexism with this racism so we can get all the isms in in this bathroom. I clocked the correct her. Because he, he says he had to deal with his kids and he had to correct his wife. That's so incel to me, which Stanley Kubrick was probably an incel, let's be oh, real. yeah. <laughs> Literally everything this previous caretaker says to Jack was they put into this bathroom is problematic. And I, it was just, I couldn't stop it. It was like a wound that kept bleeding isms. <laughs> and I was like, no! And my hands were not enough. Yeah. Um, heaven forbid if they tell people if they told them gay people exist oh god that would have been a whole other five minutes <laughs> I'm just throwing other derogatory terms out there right so like we cut back to Danny and the red rum voice I, this voice was a choice it was a choice it was a choice because he's just going wild upstairs and he's all like, red rum, red rum. And I'm just like, that's not normal. If this is your child right now, maybe don't sleep, Wendy. Like, <laughs> Especially if he's standing right in front of you saying it. Like, <laughs> red rum, red rum. How did none of the characters realize that red rum is murder backwards until she sees it in the mirror? One of the things that makes me an asshole is I always wanted Jack's drink to be rum. So perhaps that could have been a tie-in. It's not great, but I would have helped them with the whole, what is he saying? I don't understand, what is this red rum? Because if your kid who was normal-ish 
five minutes ago, all of a sudden like red rum, red rum, and weird voices. That's a that's a thing we need to discuss and handle right now. Because he goes from his normal voice to red rum, like some old smoker frog. And it was sudden and we didn't talk about it. And can we talk about how that probably killed that actress voice? Like it hurt yeah. me to do it like twice. <laughs> that voice box is done. But while we're in this red rum moment, what is Tony's fucking goal in this movie? Okay, so here's my idea with Tony. And I'm, okay. I don't want to spoil anything, but I'm really excited to get to the next thing because maybe it goes further into it. I don't know. But to me, Tony is the manifestation of his ability. He see, So he sees, Danny can see the future and can see the past and can see, connect psychologically uh, to other people and all that stuff. But I think Tony is his, because he's a child, he doesn't know how to comprehend that. So Tony is his way of coping. I like that because Tony has no goal in this movie. So I, I will allow that for this movie. I think Tony's goal is Danny's goal, but Danny doesn't know it. And Danny, and I think, so I think the goal is to keep Danny safe. That's why Tony tells him he don't want to go to that hotel from the beginning. That's why Tony tells, I mean, I think Tony is the one reaching out to um Hollerman and trying to get Hollerman to come help them. I think that that's Tony's goal because I think Tony and Danny are essentially the same person. I'll allow it because this movie has nothing going for it. So I'll allow that. And that could be way off. Does he call him Tony in the book? Yes. Yes. Um, In the book, I feel like Tony has more to do. And in the miniseries, I think he has more to do. But like to this receiver slash radio, Jack goes in and we find out that this receiver that they used to communicate with like I don't want to say park rangers, the police. Like, I don't know who these people are. They have uniforms, they're cops. They're park rangers. Oh, awesome. I was going <laughs> to, so yeah, they are park rangers. Um, so they use this radio to communicate with park rangers. And by they, I mean Wendy, because she has to do it all. Yeah, um, <laughs> the, at some point, I don't know if it's earlier than this or later than this, I'm, I've been drinking. Um, she says that when she's going to take Danny down to the doctor, she's going to radio to the park people the park rangers and tell them they're coming so they can start looking for them. Yeah, because we before this moment, we've only seen this radio once and she mentioned it that one time to him. And so now he hears this radio because Halloran has called them to be like, check on this family, something's wrong. And so like Jack is walking around and he hears them calling them on the radio, which Wendy left open. And he goes in and like, there was nothing secured. There was no screws used in this movie. He lifts the cover off without undoing anything, sets it aside, takes out what he needs to stop it from working and goes about his day. I would have looked at that and been like, I don't know, what's that do? Maybe the racist, sexist caretaker gave him that nugget to go (laughs) and dismantle that machine with. He was like, there's no screws, don't worry. We didn't have those when I was here. Just go put the lid off and take off this centerpiece and nobody can call for help. So like our next thing is Wendy picking up the baseball bat to go talk to her husband. Cause that's a sign of a good marriage. When you need to take a weapon to go talk to your husband. I, she literally picks up this baseball bat to go see if she could talk him into coming with them to safety. And my thing is if you're at that place where you need a weapon to go talk to your husband, you have your answer. He doesn't get to come with you to safety. No, you just need to go. Um, then- and I get- abuse is difficult and it takes people multiple attempts to leave yes also this movie could have done this one thing right 
and had her not be a victim this one time because she's been a victim for two and a half hours. So then she goes downstairs and she goes to his huge ass living room office um, and finds his writing. <laughs> and one of the most, probably one of the most iconic lines from this movie, one of, because I think there's two, um, is all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And it's, it's written multiple times, repeated. Multiple and ways. We had the same note here. Why does she got to look through this whole box of papers? Clearly, if the first one's got it, the second one's got it, the third one's got it, I don't need more. She went through the whole ass box of paper because he used a whole ream writing the same things in different like shapes. And she's just like pulling them and like getting more upset and hysterical because Kubrick wrote her as a hysterical woman. You know what would have been a really interesting cinematic choice? If she would have held, been holding the papers, looking through them when she sees him or he talks to her or whatever, mm -hmm. and she throws them and they all go scattered to the floor to, to hearken back to when he dislocated the son's shoulder because he dropped the papers on the ground. That yeah. would have been a cool filmmaking moment. Stanley Kubrick, don't at me. <laughs> But also what he could have done was told the actress where they would have Jack pop out at her because they didn't tell her oh, no. from the abuse because she was like doing this scene and all of a sudden he was there and they hadn't prepped her. They hadn't told her specifically where he's going to come in it. And so like that's how her reaction was that way because she was literally scared to fucking death again. She goes and, and he confronts her. And so of course, of course, in this moment, when she's expressing concern for their child and his mental health or health in general, because I don't know, he wound up strangled um, with, with bruises on his neck and his shirt ripped up. He, Jack, of course, brings it back to him because that's what straight white sisters do all the damn time. And, you know, why, have, why don't you think about my responsibilities? Why don't you do 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 do? This woman has packed up her entire life for almost half a year for you, what you need and your responsibilities. I think she has thought about you. Why not for a second think about somebody else, you abusive motherfucker? Especially after all the times he had to fall off this wagon and all that she's put up through with his addiction for him to turn it around. Um, very ungrateful. And that's another way this movie fails these characters. Uh, um, <clears throat> so he says he wants to bash her head in as he's following her up these stairs and swinging the bat and crying and screaming. Uh, but he's also coming at her with spear fingers and a lot of tongue work because it's Jack Nicholson. And so I don't know what we're really going for here. It's, it's like, I'm going to bash your head in. Tongue, 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 fingers, fingers, fingers. And I'm just like, I don't. I'm uncomfortable. I don't know specifically how comfortable I need to be. This was another scene that I felt like took too long. It did. Because he wanted to watch her suffer forever. And it shows. There was a shot that I thought really worked well. When he, when, it, when the camera was behind her and following her up the stairs and you could see Jack. And it kept cutting from that to behind Jack and you could see her. I wanted it to stay behind her and have that just speed it along a little bit faster. And it was a more effective shot because he was lower. It just, it, it would have been a better moment. I literally, I'm using this movie and my theory that a lot of the cis hetero white men horror is just them watching women suffer. 
because like I told you my theories on this and how like it goes back to like how in those documentaries on porn I had to watch for Craigslisted like a lot of it was set up to be like she's gonna say no to you but you know she wants it and how we we handle women and their agency and how they're just these things to be handled and these things to be mistreated and abused and I feel like it plays a huge part in the way society views women today still and this movie definitely is that right agreed and just to, so, so the audience knows because some of them may not know uh craigslisted is a play that sheree wrote um that was how many years for you wrote it like when you were in grad school so it's i wrote it in like 2014 15 because i graduated in 2016 yeah of course it's still being you know worked on and stuff but um and where can they find that if they would like to read craigslisted by sheree bohannon it is on new play exchange It'll also be in a reading at UNC Chapel Hill, um, which is a school, but I can find a link or so, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, check it out. It's a great play. Okay, so um, she hits him over the head and he falls down the steps. I, you know, if only he had not broken his neck. Um, also, that did not look like a body double. I wonder if he made Jack Nicholson fall down these stairs multiple times. I would not be surprised by that, actually. Like, I would not be surprised if Jack Nicholson has, like, a bum knee or something from this movie. <laughs> he limps the rest of the movie. Did you, like... Yeah. The rest of the entire film. Okay, so then she drags him and puts him in the pantry. And she he wakes up and tells her, you know, he tries all... And, again, telltale abusive signs. I, like, I would never... If I had a friend, and I do, I, that was a survivor of abuse... Um, would never tell them to watch this movie. Never in a thousand years, because this is so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Triggering yes. on abuse, because he literally uses the tactics of abusers multiple times. I'm not saying that you can't make a horror film that features abuse. I think that's fine. Um, I just would never, I would make sure everyone is aware, because especially in this movie, it is so apparent. So he's in this pantry and he's telling her, you know, I'll, I'll forget all, everything ever happened. Well, first he like freaks out. He's like, bang on the door, let me the fuck out of here. Um, and then he switches his tactics, which abusers do all the damn time to, oh, baby, I love you. Let me out. I'll forget everything. Da, 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 da. But luckily, she doesn't let him out. She tells him she's going to take the, the son and they're going to go to the doctor. And then they will send a doctor to him because he when he tries to use her hitting him with the bat, he says that he she th he thinks that she really hurt him. He's feeling dizzy. He needs her help. You know all of these things that abusers do to their victims. So this is this is when she goes to sleep with the creepy kid in the room with the voice still yes. going red rum, red rum. She and goes to sleep. And he picks up the knife. He picks up the knife. Knife. While in his croaky voice, chanting red rum, um, right. he picks up a knife. And she's just like unconscious. She's like, I'm tired. I had a busy day and I'm a victim. Um, like I, this is not a good Wendy. And it's not Shelley's fault. It's the way she was written and directed. If you, the book is night and day with this. And I'm so upset. So, but of course, we go back to the pantry. And of course, the house lets him out because the game is always rigged for the abusers. Uh, so he gets out, and she wakes up finally. 
and hugs her son and that's when she sees red rum on the door through the mirror and it clearly says murder and this is where we get the whole jack's home gambit and all of the screaming that had to have happened in this bathroom while the little boy escapes to the window and then and then halloran makes it back but surprise he's only come back to be murdered as he is the only murderer of the movie and the only black man in the movie. I wonder if that's a coincidence. But also, if you're going, at, this is just a, a PSA for everyone out there in the world. Because spoiler alert, we have a listener in the UK. Hey. Hey. <laughs> um, but if you're going into a situation and you have had, you know, you have these psychic abilities and these psychic connections and you know something's wrong, do not go into this room and start yelling, hello, is anybody there? When he arrives at the Overlook, the doors are still stuck open from when Shelly pushed her way out scenes ago. <laughs> I don't like a close right. And he's just like, hello, hello. Meanwhile, Jack is walking around with an ax. Right. An ax. And so like, we don't even get a fight. We don't get a struggle. We don't get a conversation. He just goes ahead and kills the black man and keeps going about his day. And we brought him back for that. Yeah, and my he literally child, does nothing else. Does, does that happen in the, in the book? In the book, he lives. In the book, he lives. Him, the wife, and the child escape in the book. Um, also, going back to how Cupid's an asshole, I'm pretty sure the person he wanted for Halloran was a white man because like, they did a James Bond, I think, together. And he was like, no, I think it was Slim Pickens. That's the guy's name, I think. I should you not at Slim Pickens because it was the late 70s and people still had random stage names. And he was like, I don't want to oh, well, Slim Pickens. <laughs> I don't want any more Stanley. Stanley's fucked up. Don't want to do it anymore. And so he was like, fine then. I'll follow the book and cast a black person. But I'm so going to kill him. So it is in the book that he's black. Yes. Because Stephen King and the Magical Negro, like hand in hand, like peanut butter and jelly or peanut butter and chocolate. It's just like, if I'm reading Stephen King, I know when I see a Black person, they're magical. Unfortunately, unfortunately, Halloran is dead. And... Only murder victim in a whole-ass horror movie. Right. And Let's unpack that. <laughs> can you know, Do we have enough time? That's a whole other separate podcast now. Like, how do we... The only person we actually murder in this two and a half hours we've spent with Stephen Kubrick is a Black man who was doing the right thing by trying to save the kid and the wife. A child, yes. Yes. That he is now, so now Jack is gonna start chasing his child in this maze that we forgot to mention outside this house um, or this hotel. And I will say, I was super proud of this little boy when he had the idea to backtrack and step in his footsteps. What eight-year-old do you think would be like, you know what I need to do? I need to go back and um, confuse him by stepping only in my in my footsteps. I don't know if that was Tony in his mouth telling him what to do, or if it was on his own. I, it was probably his ability that was telling him for sure. But like, super smart. Good for you, boy. <laughs> um. So like, he gets back to the snowcat where his mom has made it, and she tosses him in, and they ride off into this dark abyss on this snowy ass mountain. And then we cut to Jack Nicholson being frozen. <laughs> it's my favorite gif of all time. <laughs> Was it ever not funny? 
was it ever like if you were alive in the 70s and you saw that and you were like oh god please let me know put that in my dms not the black naked ladies on the wall like put right. that in my dm <laughs> he was over this movie he was over stanley kubrick he was over acting he was over this 13 months they spent out here in the snowy ass shit he was over it all um this also is different because in the book the boiler explodes and so we don't get any funny versions of jack being dead because he's blown to pieces i would like that a lot better like in the book so i like i said i hadn't read it in a while but in the book they keep mentioning the boiler throughout like even when they're giving them the keys and like they have a check on it every night because if it doesn't do the thing and then it overheats and it blows up and so in the book i'm pretty sure jack corners his son and he's coming for him and he's trying to fight it off because he's still in there somewhere and his son finally is like daddy what about the boiler and that's when the thing that's in jack is like oh shit and starts running for the basement and he gets down there but not in enough time so that gives halloran wendy and danny time to get into the snowcat and start riding down the mountain it's it's a better death um <laughs> So does the whole building explode? Oh yeah, that whole thing is done. Um, it's in pieces, which is why I'm curious to see how this sequel should make sense in the novels. But who knows? It's Stephen King. People rebuild all the time. Who knows? Well, the sequel follows the boy, the son. Yes, yeah, so they get out. We've, we've frozen Jack Nicholson to death. and now, But now he's in the picture on the wall. That's the last shot of the film. Which is so in the book? Is there a motif of these pictures? Is that a is that a deal? Is that a, something? I there could be pictures because that was the thing to do when you were a horror writer in the seventies and sixties is to be like give it a picture so all the dead people can hang out. And so I could definitely see that being there, but also because the overlook explodes and is on fire, I don't know if it would have survived. <laughs> so I don't think we would have seen it. Well, like I said, I have not read that book in at least a decade, maybe more. Right. Well, because also in the um, earlier point in the film, when he's finally um, addressing the previous caretaker and saying, I know who you are, he says, I've seen you in pictures. That might be in the book, actually. Yeah, he's saying, he says, I've seen you in pictures. I know who you are. You used to be the caretaker. And then he says to him, you've always you've always been the caretaker to jack which is a really interesting choice which probably was in the book because that's actually one of the more interesting plot points <laughs> i could see that i i feel like it might have been um i really wish i could have reread the book it's sitting like an hour away from me in a different part of indiana with my other stuff that my friend is holding on to since 2016. <laughs> and i could not justify a trip to get it just for this podcast or i wouldn't be able to read it <laughs> but um because, yeah, and the picture is a party from 1921, uh, for the July party, from 1921. So I'm curious about why that year is significant, why 4th of July, why this picture. If you're going to zoom in on a picture and then zoom and then like scroll down so that you specifically zoom, the last thing we see is the Overlook Hotel. Fourth of July party, 1921, with Jack's face. Why? There needs to be a point to that. The fact that I have to do so much reaching to come up with excuses means it's not done well. Because I can make up, like, three quick excuses. But, like, are they are they accurate? Are they not accurate? We don't know, because Stanley Kubrick is above the law. 
Or was yeah, it? I get, I get when he goes back into the party earlier in the film. They're clearly in the 20s. Like, I get that that's the party he's in the picture with. But, like, you don't answer enough of that before then to make that make sense. Anyway, all right. So that's The Shining. So to all of our listeners who love this film, we're sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's not that it's not an enjoyable... Um, it's, it is of its time. If I was in the late 70s, maybe I would have appreciated it. But I saw it as a child in the 90s and was like, meh. <laughs> and I saw it today and was like, I have rage. Um, and so I think that I'm just missing it by some decades. And that's fair. And I, like I said, I will agree with the people who love it for the cinematography, the way it's shot, not so much the pacing, because I think, again, there could have been 30 minutes taken out of this film and it would have been much better. Yes. Um, but there's some great cinematography. There's some great shots, but overall, meh with a lot of problematic shit yes which leads us to the hot takes yes my hot take is i do not understand how people worship at the altar of kubrick um knowing what he puts his actors through and knowing this is a final product i i'm really upset that like shelly duvall won the first raspberry award for a performance when she was giving nothing to work with so like she did the best she could with what she had in a toxic environment. And I just, I need us to do better. And I keep saying it, I need us to do better about standing problematic assholes. Being abusive does not make you a genius. Point blank. Boom. Boiler blown up. There it is. Boom. It blew up and then it froze. So Jack Nicholson, give us those eyes. <laughs> All right, um, my hot take. I think, this is kind of piggybacking off of what you said, of a point of what you said. I think we need to get, to get rid of the Razzies. The Razzies make no goddamn sense to me. Like, I get it. There's bad movies, and it's funny to point them out, as we've been doing. It's humiliating for the actors, because A, like you said, Shelley wasn't given good writing. And, and, and I don't know who judges the Razzies. But if they're not any writers on that thing, then there needs to be. Because if the actor, for example, another one, who I think is a fine actress, but she was given horseshit writing, was, Callie, was Halle Berry in Catwoman. I thought that that film was terrible, but it wasn't Halle Berry's fault. <laughs> Didn't write it. Right. Um, and so, like, the Razzies are just a way to humiliate people. And I get that, that some people shtick. Some people love humiliation humor it's not for me i think that the arts in general should be celebrated even if you don't like it even if it's not your cup of tea even if it you know you even, even if it's a terrible film in your eyes that's your opinion and that's valid and that should be heard but that doesn't mean you need to take a giant shit on someone else's work that they put their heart, soul, and energy into. Because I'm sure with Shelley Duvall getting the first Razzie for this performance, which I don't think is that bad. It's not a bad performance. It was a bad movie. Yes. And which I don't, it, and like, but I'm sure it just compounded upon the abuse she already endured for this work. 
I feel like those kind of awards are definitely severely misguided and that just like as a as people we don't understand all the like mechanics behind most media and so it's easy to blame the actor because we see the actor as opposed to the people behind the scenes who put the actor in that place because this was definitely a writing directing issue and so to give like Kubrick Razzies I couldn't give a shit but like to blame the actor for what she was given and what she had to endure that's a different issue like as a writer I know when my character's not fully realized, that's my fault. So for you to attack the actor who is giving you that role feels weird and makes me feel bad because I have a soul, I'm like Kubrick. And so I would want you to be like, hey, Sheree, that character right there. And I could be like, yes, let's have a dialogue. Let's have tea, let's have vodka, whatevs. Um, I wouldn't want you to go after the actor to be like, why are you fucking this up? It's disingenuous. And it, especially because they rewrote this character to be this way to only cry and scream the whole movie. She never actually has like a real thought. She never has like a real agency. She is only there to serve her husband and her son and to cry and scream. And can we also talk about how typically the Razzies that we talk about are women? Mm-hmm. Cause we the, all know we all hate women. The three that I could remember having actually had conversations about and having read about who has won a Razzie Shelley Duvall, because she was the first. Halle Berry, because she actually accepted her Razzie. And the Spice Girls. Name me another Razzie. We only talk about when women fuck up. And like, granted, again, Jack Nicholson's performance wasn't terrible. It was just as good as Shelley's. They were given pages that did neither of them justice. Right. Because like I said, I, I was a writer die for Jack Nicholson because he was my first Joker. I've seen him do much better work, yes. But also, it's because he's given better material and better direction. So, like, a real director could have been like, hey, Jack, let's not start off creepy. Also, they could have written it to not start off creepy because literally everything he said could be interpreted that way, and that's the way he went as a younger version of Jack Nicholson. But also, I need to, like, pause because we are six months into this pandemic, and unfortunately, a young Jack Nicholson could get it at this point, and I'm very confused and concerned about what's going to look like after we come out? I'm probably gonna cut this, but I'm gonna make a, <laughs> a really funny um, confession. Mm-hmm. When we, when I was watching the documentary and he's unbuttoning and unzipping his pants, I had a moment where I was like. I was like, yes, Jackie, <laughs> yes. I, I have never been attracted to Jack Nicholson. Never, never, ever. And I, I respected him as an actor. I still do, I guess, even though I don't really follow his work anymore. But like, before the six months in the pandemic, I was never like, Jack could get it, even at a younger age. But watching The Shining, I was like, young Jack could get it. And that's when I was like, 2020 has done too much. I am afraid to come out of the other side. (laughs) That's my second hot take, I guess. My second hot take is young Jack Nicholson could get it now. Whew, that was an episode again. If you love this movie. Well, okay, I want to say this. If you have specific issues with something we've said, please let us know. Like, if, if, if you feel like we missed the point or missed something, please let us know. But if you're going to come at us with disregarding our opinions because we didn't love the movie that you loved, because it, then I want you to take a step back, think about it, and think about how some, especially 
if you fit into this category, if you are a straight, white, cisgendered male, take a second, take a step back, and think about this film in a critical lens from a perspective that is not your own. I know that speaking from someone who is not in that group, I had to do that from the <laughs> birth, essentially, to look at a world and think about it in a different perspective other than myself. I encourage you to do that and, and to do that and still be able to enjoy the movie if you enjoy it. It's too long for me. The pacing is off. I don't like the characters. I don't love the story's interesting. I wish it were told differently. Um, but if you, if you do love the film, I'm not saying you can't love it. Or I'm not, and I'm not saying that if you do love it, you're problematic. I'm just asking you to admit that it's problematic and you love it. Amen. If you're afraid to have an opinion about something you love, then that's a problem, especially when you're coming to our podcast, which is definitely us reliving these things through our lenses and experiences. And for you to come in and just sort of be like, well, as a white cis straight hetero man, I feel <laughs> I, this is not the podcast for you. And that's fine. That's fine. You can leave Chad. I, I support you when you're leaving and knowing your limits. Good night, Chad. <laughs> But if you, and even if you are a straight white cisgendered man and you can listen to these perspectives and take that in, then we welcome your, your discourse. Because there are probably some things that I, that I missed or I didn't see or is uh, some context that I'm not aware of because I'm not a huge Kubrick fan or a Nicholson fan or a Shelley Duvall fan. Um, I do think justice for Shelley Duvall is a thing because, but Stanley Kubrick. Right. Um, I look, she has not done anything since 2002, which I think is really sad. She got problems. Like, Dr. Phil brought her on his show to exploit her, and it's sad. Because, like, I, I didn't know, because I don't watch Dr. Phil, and last time I saw her, she was acting. And so, like, when I was doing research for this, I was like, oh. But he brought her on, and she's not doing well mentally or physically. And people were dragging him for it, including Stanley Kubrick's daughter. Um, because she was talking about that abuse, but also talking about some things that are definitely not real, which, again, I, how much of this time with Kubrick is part of that, and how much of it is genetic or whatever else going on, and Dr. Phil was explaining her, and that's gross. So, real-life monsters <laughs> um, are plentiful. But moving on. All right. So, next week, Sheree, what are we going to talk about? Because we had so much fun picking this apart, we decided to do Dr. Sleep. I've seen it once and I've listened to the book, so I'm excited to see it on a second rewatch and Trent's never seen it. So hot takes all around. <laughs> this will be the first movie we've done since we started this podcast, which granted has only been like, what, five episodes? Um, I, that I haven't seen the film at some point in time. So I am excited to experience this newness with everyone, even though I'm, I know I'm late to the game. It's been out for like years, but like, I just haven't had a chance to watch it. All right. So yes, next week is Dr. Sleep. I believe you can find that. Is it on HBO or is it on Hulu? HBO, like all the HBOs, HBO Max, HBO Now, HBO Then, HBO Now and Then. It's on all of them. <laughs> all right. So HBO, there it is. 
Um, so yeah, again, follow us on all the social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can send us messages on there. You can send us comments. Thank y'all for listening. Stay fierce. Stay fierce, y'all. Thank you.